0: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts David Clancy and Kieran Dunn.
1: This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings.
0: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 79. Today we spoke to Ule Hess, acclaimed football writer and author, editor and journalist. Ule talks about employment as a writer now with the editorial staff of Eleven Freunde magazine, Germany's biggest football monthly versus being self-employed as a freelancer in the past. This man won the football book of the year by The Telegraph last year. Aspiring and established writers can learn so much from Uli. We talk about books in a foreign language, and the challenges of that for selling and publicity, considering English readership markets. We lean in when Uli discusses what makes a good writer, and the point in time when he identified himself as a writer. This is a remarkable, true-to-life journey of a writer who started penning pieces about music in Rolling Stone magazine, to football, and all that came in between. Thanks for joining us, Uli.
2: This episode was brought to you by Cool Slitters. You can find out more about their products online at www.coolslitters.ie. They provide quality GAA hurling and football products and training equipment. We're very fortunate to know the people behind Cool Slitters, so we're always very grateful to partner with them. So thanks again, and please be sure to check them out. Hi, Uli. Thanks for coming on the show. Where are you joining us from today?
1: I'm in Berlin, actually. I moved here a couple of years ago um, because I was, well, they talked me into um, taking up a job, you know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm properly employed for the first time in my life, you know, contract and everything. And uh, it's a football magazine. They're based in Berlin. And so, well, I more or less had to move to Berlin.
0: So that must be nice. To it's not always something that writers or journalists have is that kind of employment and kind of steady state. What, what's that like for the head?
1: Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I've always wanted to be self-employed. I never wanted to, you know, to sit in an office nine to five. That's the way it turned out. You know, maybe we, we can talk about how it happened and why it happened. You, you know, the craziest thing is it, it's good for the head in a situation like this. You know, lots of my I know lots of people, self-employed people uh, who are struggling mightily now, you know, with this um, with this uh, COVID-19 crisis, whereas I can sit here, keep getting paid, which is, uh, well, bizarre for so many reasons.
0: That's a nice situation to be in. And tell us a little bit about kind of what the day job involves now and kind of what exactly you're doing in Berlin.
1: Well, as I said, um, I've been a freelancer almost for my entire working life. And friends of mine run a monthly football magazine here in Berlin called it's, it's. I always say it's the biggest German monthly, which, which, which is true. But by and large, it's the only German football monthly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you
0: leave uh, that bit out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine called me and said, would you help us out during the summer? There was, I think it was 2012, because um, we're, we're a pretty big magazine, you know, I think 30, 32 people work for the magazine, you know, not, not all of them writers, obviously, but still during big tournaments, it's really stressful because, in, you know, we do all kinds of things like, you know, we have events going on through the big tournament, there's public screenings, there's the website, of course. And during all this, we're always preparing, under normal circumstances, the big preseason issue. Uh, You know, so when when everybody's either on holidays or watching international football, we're trying to talk to club people. So he said, could you come over for just four weeks and help us out doing the the magazine? And I said, yeah, why not? So I came over here, I spent four weeks here, and after the end of those four weeks, they offered me a job. Uh, And I said, yeah, yeah, I don't really want to move to Berlin, you know, and I would like to stay self-employed. And this happened three or four times. Hmm. Uh, And then which is another thing you may want to take. You don't have to. But then I delivered a book for the largest publishing house in the world. Uh, and, you know, when you when you do books, you get money once the contract is signed. Uh, you get money once you deliver the manuscript. and Then you get money as soon as the book is actually published. So this was stage two, and I turned in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, nothing happened. <laughs> so I said, uh, listen, guys, I think you owe me money. And They said, "Yeah, well, well, you know, according to the contract, we have to, you know, first to 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 check the manuscript," and, mm. and I said, "Well, how long can this take?" You know, uh, and it took quite a long time. Um, anyway, that was this was the first time because they owed me money, off, obviously, and I'd spend like months without any proper income just working on the book. And that was the first time when I thought, "Gee, you know, th- there's something to be said." For being employed, and you know, sure. getting a paycheck every every uh, every month and so on, and and so the next time they asked, I said, and then the next time the magazine asked, I said, well, well, let's try it. Let's try it for a couple of months and see see how this works out. And yeah, that's how I ended up here. In in a way, it is, of course. In a way, it is a proper nine to five job. You know, turn up in the morning in the office and you uh, spend a couple of hours, then you go home, unless it's Corona. Uh, sure. But the great thing about um, and I should have done this a lot earlier, <laughs> uh, you know, joined a magazine. So we were, I was here for like two or three days. Then we had a meeting, uh, you know, and in the morning everybody throws around ideas and what do we have to do, what do we want to cover. And somebody said, uh, have you heard that they're bringing back safe standing at Celtic Park? And everybody said, yeah, that, that's a good, that's a typical El Frida story, you know, because we're more interested in the football culture than the games and the results. And then, he, and then somebody said, yeah anyone wants to go to glasgow and and nobody said yes you know none of the hands went up so i said Mm -hmm. go to glasgow you mean like watch a game at celtic park and talk to people they said yeah exactly And i said hey yeah i want to do that (laughs) uh so um so yeah then i went to glasgow and what i want to say is that every you know whenever sitting in an office gets too boring and you can always go and you know go to a game and talk to people, fly to other countries. So that's really a, a very nice part of the job.
0: Absolutely, as a lovely perk, like to be able to just fly to Scotland for for a big match like that. Let, let's rewind back for a minute. Who like like that, that's kind of your story as to where you are these days. But when did you identify yourself as a writer and kind of get into it as as I suppose your career? Like those already kind of starting days.
1: That's difficult to answer. It was probably in the mid-90s, I think. One thing is people always ask me, you know, uh, let me put this differently. Now, this is, sounds this sounds really, really cheeky, but I don't, don't know any other way to introduce this. You know, last year I won a prize. Uh, one of my books was voted um, um, Football Book of the Year by the, you know, it was the Telegraph Sports Book of the Year Awards. And I went to the ceremony and I sat around and th- there was another guy Another German guy who won a prize for a book uh, about the 1936 Olympics, and during the conversation, and during the you know when this guy went up and introduced his book, I realized that everybody thought that my book was a translation. You know, everybody thought, oh, he's done a he's a German writer, so he's done a German book and it was translated into English. (laughs) So then I I explained to people, no, it was written in English, uh, for an English audience, or at least for a non-German audience. And then people always come up to me and say, this must be very difficult. How can you do this? And I just say, well, I've had a lot of practice because um, I, I've always liked writing. I've always written stuff. Ever since I was, in my, I was in my teens, I wrote about music for a fanzine. And that was done by a friend of mine. And it was done in English, you know, because um, the market was very small. And um, But once you do something in English, you know, the market becomes really big. You know, we sold the magazine to Japan and whatever. And um, so I've always done a lot of writing, mainly well, mainly about music, um, but I, I never thought of it as a career. I actually didn't know what a career could be. So the master plan was to go to university, to work for the university. And um, my dear wife, she's, you know, she's got a proper job, or she had at the time. She's an architect. She was an architect. So I thought, well, that that sounds like a great life, you know? You go to university and you read books and stuff like that and, and your wife earns the bread. Uh, and we actually did do that for, I think it was two years. And then she said, um, listen, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, uh, I, I, want, I want to do something else. I, it, it's too stressful. Couldn't you earn some money, You know, at least for some time? And I thought, geez, well, there's nothing that I actually can do. So how am I supposed to earn money? So I took a piece which I've done, which I did for the fanzine, you know, it was about, um, I talked to an American musician and I thought, this is kind of like the story they might want to use at Rolling Stone magazine, Mm -hmm. which had just started in Germany. So I, so I sent them, you know, I rewrote the piece to be more Rolling Stoney. So I sent them the piece and, you know, I didn't hear from them for weeks. (laughs) So, so I phoned them up and said, you know, at, at the time I, I didn't know that you were not supposed to do that, you know, um, sort of like phoning them up and asking, "Did you get my mail?" At that, at that, well, at that point, it was a letter, obviously in the mid '90s, uh, and they said, "Oh yeah, we, we got your piece. It's got to be in the next issue." And would you invoice us for eight hundred marks? Wow. I've never eight hundred marks, you know, in my life before, at least not in you know in <clears throat> with one thing. So, well, I think ever since ever since that day, it must have been around. I think it was in nineteen ninety five. Of being a writer,
0: amazing to hear kind of how it came about, and nearly it was the push from your from your wife. Thanks very much for sharing that. I suppose I just want to ask you something that I picked up. You you did have have a day when your book was quite successful, and you became a bestseller um, and won an award. Kind of, how did that make you feel when you knew that one of the pieces that you put together in a foreign language in English? Reach, obviously, such an audience that every, everyone really liked it. What did that make you feel? How did you feel about that?
1: This is very difficult. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's a bestseller, you know. You know, getting an award or a prize not, not necessarily translated to big sales, although I haven't seen any figures for the last year yet. You know, and it never strikes me as particular, even, even what I've just told you, that whenever I tell the story that I've just told you to people, You know, I sometimes talk to, you know, to aspiring journalists and writers and, you know, sometimes they drag pupils into our offices and and I have to talk to them and explain to them, you know, how did get end up doing a job like that. And almost everybody says, you mean your first piece ever was in Rolling Stone magazine? And it's only then Mm -hmm. that I realized, yeah, yeah, it is kind of unusual. It is, you know, normally you start writing for local newspapers or whatever. And it's the same with this book. I guess it's because actually my first book was um, in English. There was tour almost twenty years ago. There was there was in fact that was nominated for a prize as well, but it never won any prize. So many people have come up to me and said that they know the book and that they like it. So which is now nah, this sounds a bit corny, but if people come up to you and say we really really like your book, it's almost the same as actually getting a prize for it. If if, if it, that makes sense to you, if, if you know what I mean. I was honored, of course. It was very honored. Yeah, it was it was it was a crazy day anyway.
2: Tell us a bit about the book. It's building the Yellow Wall. It's about Brucey e. Dortmund, the globalization of the club, and sort of a cult following
1: for them. Well, as I said, I um, my, my first book came about. That happened because of a radio interview which I did uh, in the late nineties. There was a game between Bayern Munich and Man United, and I was on BBC Radio Five Live talking about, you know, Bayern Munich. And at one point, the guy who did the interview said, um, I'm Sorry, sorry, may I interrupt you? Um, are you telling me that Germany didn't have you, that the Bundesliga only came into being in the 1960s? And I said, Yeah, yeah, actually, we, we didn't have a proper professional football until the 1960s. And then he said, But that, you know, that would mean that you won the 1954 World Cup without professional players. And I said, Yes, but, oh, well, that, that's more or less. They were semi pros yeah. And he said, I didn't know that. That's amazing. So I thought, you know, if, if a pro, you know, professional journalist talking to me didn't know these things about the German game, well, maybe I should, you know, write a book about it. And so that's what I did. And then many years pass, and I've done one or two new editions, but uh, it's always a big hassle, you know, you don't want to, you don't just want to add chapters, you know, it's uh, because that would sort of ruin the structure of the book. So at one point, I thought I would like to do an English book again, but not to worry, because that would just too much work, you know, restructuring everything. And I talked to an agent, and I I said I have two ideas. One is to do a book about Bayern Munich, because they're obviously the biggest German club. And the other is a a book about Borussia Dortmund, because they're right now, that was seven, eight years ago, they seem to be one of the most popular clubs around. Um, And they happen to be my club. You know, I am from Dortmund. And for various reasons... We ended up doing a book about Bayern Munich, uh, which is a fairly—I don't want to say conventional, because that's something as if I'm critical of my own book. It, it, it's like it's a normal club history, you know. With Bayern, you've got so many star players and the trophies and everything, and you have to, you know, you have to go through all the finals and all the big players and everything. And then somebody asked me if I wanted to do this Dortmund book, and I said, "Yeah, I really want to do this because it will be very—it is still a club history, of course." It's going to be a very different club history. It's also a history of the club's fans, of of the club's origins, of the community the club serves. Mainly because a book about Dortmund, you know, number one has to address all these things because that's the first thing you think of. You know, when you when you think of Dortmund, you know, the yellow wall, the, the terraces, the fans. And it's also that you've got a lot more breathing space when you talk about a club like Dortmund because you, they are just the. There aren't that many championships and then you know trophies won, so you've got a lot more, lot more time to talk about things.
0: I suppose you can you can spend a little bit of time talking about Schalke, who wouldn't be wouldn't be your favourite team if you're from Dortmund. I suppose you you have the opportunity to do things like that.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's funny. Schalke play an important role. Um, First of all, first of all, absolutely right. Normally, when people ask me about not not about the Dortmund book, but about the Bayern book, the first thing they say is. But you're a Dortmund fan how could you write a book about Bayern and hmm. and I always say yeah but you know I'm, I'm from the generation I was born in 1966 I didn't grow up with the feeling that Bayern Munich are Dortmund's rivals you know they were in an entire different stratosphere as far as I'm concerned our rivals are Schalke and always will be but having said that the Dortmund-Schalke rivalry is not that old you know it only started after the war because before the war Dortmund were a really small club, and Schalke were just massive. You know, I've done I've done I've done an oral history book with Dortmund fans in German, um, and most of the older ones, the they the first thing they told me was that when we grew up, we all were Schalke fans because Schalke were the big club. You know, in the '30s, and they sort of represented the rural area and, and the working class where we all come from. Most people from Dortmund had Schalke as their second club. Until after the war when Dortmund then became a big club and there was this rivalry.
2: With the book Building the Yellow Wall, I read a recent review and it was very complimentary and it said that the anecdotes that you speak about are backed up by interviews, not only with players that we'd recognize or managers, but also with the fans. Was there any of the fans or their stories that particularly struck you as you know awe-inspiring or amazing? <laughs>
1: yeah the well i'm i'm not in, i'm not sure if if awe inspiring or amazing is, is <laughs> but there was one fan who told me a story and i had to check it because I didn't quite believe him um he was what's the english word for for abitur for you know when you finish school is is this um graduation graduation yeah. before i mean when you get qualification to go to university uh you, you know um um this guy was supposed to have his, you know, that sort of exam. I should know the English word for this. It's A level.
0: Who should we Uli?
1: A level. <laughs> anyway, it was the equivalent of A levels and he had his exam coming up. And then he realized if you know, if I if I make the, take this exam and if I pass, it will always it will forever say Jan henrik Rosaki because that's his name. Abitur 04. You know, it would be 2004. 04. And 04 is, you know, Schalke, you know, <laughs> you know, Schalke were formed in 1904. So he said, well, he actually went to his parents and said, I cannot take these exams. I have to take them next year. Uh, and this, sounds, this is so bizarre. I, I thought he was, you know, taking me up, but I checked it and it's, and it's true. He is, he, is, oh my, he is one of the most, he is now one of the most prominent Dortmund fans. Um, for instance, this is the very same guy, I think I mentioned that in the book, the very same guy who, who now owns the flat where the club was was founded. He's actually the same. This is also the same guy, which I think is not in the book. You know, he founded one of the earliest Dortmund ultras groups. And uh, then he met people who said, I know you're really, really deeply into football and you like all that, you know, the noise and everything. And, and then, So what you need to do is you go to, have to go to Argentina and watch football there. Just one game, just do it. So he he saved up enough money, you know, to go to Argentina. He he flew to Buenos Aires, went into a ground, saw a game, and said, oh, "I'm going to live here. This is great." And he did not go back for a couple of years. He stayed in Buenos Aires, uh, just you know, just because the football, watching the football there was so amazing. And then then he set up a um, how do you call this? A football travels. He does football travels now for people who want to go. Ground helping in Argentina, you know, he organizes that. Um, but he eventually came back to Dortmund.
0: Like, why wouldn't you want to catch a, a Boca or a River Plate game? I remember a, a patient of mine before in London was a fellow called Alejandro Forlín, a lefty who used to play for QPR, and actually now he's playing in Spain. And his love for the game was just intoxicating. Like, he breathed football and nothing else. And he used to always talk about where he came from in Argentina and how that's That's all that there is there. There's nothing else. So um, I can see why he'd probably move there and and wouldn't want to leave and wouldn't want to do anything else if he loved the game, you know?
1: Yeah, it must be amazing. They've done a few films about, you know, he he set up a small company and, and they've produced films about football in Argentina.
2: Hey folks, thanks for listening to the first part of the episode. We hope you're getting some value from it. What we're going to do now is take a quick break. We're going to hear from a former guest, Holly Hustler, Holly joined David on episode number 69. And we're going to hear about what Holly does.
1: Hi, my name's Holly Hustler. I'm a London-based yoga teacher and sound healer. I used to be in a girl band singing cheesy pop tunes to thousands of people on the London O2 Arena stage. And I've now gone down a more healing path where I sing mantras and play crystal singing bowls and other beautiful instruments to people all across the globe. I have a podcast called Honestly Unbalanced with my husband, Adam Hustler, where we dig beneath the glossy exterior of the wellbeing industry. And you can find all of my information on my Instagram, which is I am Holly Hustler and on my website hollyhustler.com.
0: Uli, I'd like to take a little pivot for a minute from from your successful books and your, and your kind of journey there. And we have a couple of young writers that, that listen and subscribe to this podcast. I, for one, is trying to improve my skills as a writer. What, what advice would you give to the two of us and our, our listeners about how you can become a better writer, or what you need to do to be a better writer.
1: Um, one thing, well, one thing I always found is, is really good is reading. Uh, which sounds crazy, but I know quite a lot of writers who don't re- don't really read that much. You know, most most people say they don't they don't find the time, or you know, they say if I've been writing all day, I don't want to sit down with a book and read. You know, but I found this very. There, there is, for instance, um, there is a series of books called "The Best American Sports Writing." Um, yeah. Um, I, I found these to be very, very inspiring. Um, that, that's one thing. Uh, another thing I've already mentioned is, is practice, you know, just, just practice. I don't know, I've, as I said, I, I don't know how many articles I wrote for fanzines, which, which hardly anybody ever saw, you know, until I became a, you know, <laughs> well, until I became a professional writer. But that was just a fantastic practice, I think, you know. I, I still remember that whenever I, I mean, this is sort of maybe a combination between reading and practice. I still remember that I was, well, maybe 16 or 17 or 18 or whatever. And whenever, uh, whenever, there was, whenever I would read something that I found very interesting, I would then try to copy it in the magazine, in this fanzine, you know, which sometimes uh, annoyed my, my friend to put out the magazine. You know, If, for instance, I had um, discovered Lester Bangs, who was a rock critic, you know, he had a very idiosyncratic style. I would then deliver a piece that was written in the style of, of Lester Banks, uh, you know, or, or I don't know, or when I, you know, I had a, well, like most everybody else, I think, well, at least most everybody else was about my age. Uh, there, there was a period where I was very much into the new journalism, all those American writers, and I would suddenly write, you know, sort of try to write record reviews like Tom Wolfe would do, uh, mm-hmm. would have done. Which is, um, which is silly because you should, but it, it, it is a way of finding your own voice, you know, trying out different voices and one day you'll arrive at your own.
0: It's funny, I recently did a course with Stephen Kotler who wrote a book called The Rise of Superman a couple of years ago. And yeah, he yeah. actually, the advice he gave to the writing course that I was part of was steal a style, kind of look at your <laughs> seven authors or books that you like and that will help form your style. So if it's Hunter S. Thompson or if it's Ula Hess or if it's Cormac McCarthy or or kind of whoever from different genres, and you'll kind of find your flourish and construction through that process. Absolutely. I found yeah. that really interesting. And now hearing it from you who's obviously been there, done that.
1: I mean it's probably the same if you if you play football, you know, as a kid, you I don't know, there will be a player that inspires you and you, you want to be like him and then you gradually, you know, grow out of that and become yourself. I guess, yeah, I guess I guess that's that, that's how it works.
0: What do you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your writing career?
1: Wow, this is
0: a great question.
1: Um, maybe it's, I mean, one of the things is that um, what I didn't really do that much when I started out was, uh, as silly as this may sound, was talk to a lot of people. You know, you ever talk to people when you do an interview, of course, and when you research a story, I would you know make a couple of phone calls. but um I've mentioned this before I've done this oral history book about Dortmund's fans. and I don't know to how many people I talked to uh, during the, you know while we were working on this book and it was always very fascinating that um I mean you can take something out of every conversation if you know what I mean you, can, you talk to anybody and, and, and something good will come out of it. it will give you an idea or you know, or maybe a new angle, or whatever. You know, to ordinary people, I was not. You know, just normal fans. You know, and, and 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 I took something out of every conversation, and uh, that there was there was sort of thing that I've never really done before. You know, talk to so many people. I mean, ordinary people, and then maybe that's one thing I've learned over the years. You know, that every conversation will give you something.
2: Yeah, that's very good. Um, was there any particular article or one of your books or anything that you are particularly pleased about? even a chapter in a
1: book that you felt like, that's my voice, that's my style coming true? I think, you know, I, what I've come to see is, uh, you know, when I, back when I was a writer, uh, uh, let's say back when I was writing for this fanzine, and then during the first couple of years when I was, starting, when I was writing for Rolling Stone magazine, before then I gradually got into football, football writing, uh, what always annoyed me about the musicians was that there was, you would ask them about their favorite record, you know, of their own albums. And they would always say, my, my most recent one, <laughs> which was always very annoying because, you know, you felt he's just selling his latest product to me, you know. But now I'm beginning to say the same thing. <laughs> um, it's kind of always, I'm, I've, at least I feel that I'm getting better with every book. And that it's really normally the most recent one that I like the most and where I feel, which is the most me. If you know, if that makes any sense. Probably really when I, I think it was, you know, we did a hardcover version of the Dortmund book. And then when the paperback came out, I got a PDF again just to read through it again. And so I reread the whole book and I thought, well, it, it's not too bad, you know.
2: And just with the, you mentioned interviewing people and you talk to players and you talk to musicians, the sort of image of, the relationship between journalists and players often seems quite frosty from the outside in. What is that relationship like when you are the person who is interviewing the, either you know these elite performers be them musicians or football players
1: oh, one thing I think most people will tell you that most players are astonishingly pleasant to talk to and most of them you know it's it's become a cliche but I found this to be true but it's almost it's it's not entirely a rule but it's almost a rule that the better the player is, the more, ne- the more easy it is to talk to him because he's got no. Mo- most people, most really big name players I know, have virtually no airs and graces, you know, and, and they really welcome it if you talk to them in, in, in a perfectly normal way. I always tell people that, uh, you know, I've done interviews now, well, starting with the fanzine, which was in the 80s, for, God, oh, for 35 years. Can that be true? <laughs> Jesus. <Jeez. sighs> anyway, for a long time. And the only really unpleasant interview I've ever had was with a virtually unknown musician, <sighs> a virtually unknown Australian musician who was really in a very, very foul mood. And I, I asked him a very simple question. I think I, I, I just said to him that um, that that you know his music was a bit re- repetitive in the sense in which the blues is repetitive. If you know what I mean, you've got yeah. the same. And he totally took offense to that. And he said, "Are you telling me I'm a blues musician?" <laughs> and then you know it really get down from that point on, uh, but but most of the players have actually been very yeah. It, the, the the difficult thing is is access, ex- you know. The difficult thing is to get press the press people, and 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 you know the media department and actually get time with the players. And once you get that, it's it's very often. I mean, yeah, I describe a couple of scenes like that in the Dortmund book. Uh, a couple of behind-the-scenes look, for instance, when I went for 2 magazine to, um, to Spain, to Dortmund's winter training camp, and uh, yeah, where well, we thought it would be very difficult to talk to the players, but Jurgen Klopp helped us out and, and made it very easy for us. But what is true is that it's, well, as I've said, it's become very, very difficult. Um, I still remember, and um, I don't know why I've, I've told this story a couple of times in the recent months. I don't really know why. but I think a lot of people have have asked me about Paul Lambert, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Scottish mm-hmm. player who, I think the term is more or less correct, who suddenly ended up at Borussia Dortmund and became a Champions League winner. Uh, I, I talked to him, and there was so that was in the mid '90s, and at that time, as a writer, you just went to the training ground, you watched the training session and and after the player's you know at the end of the training session they would go into the dressing room and he would just talk to them you know he would say hey paul can I do an interview with you and they would say yeah give me 15 minutes i'll be right back and he would stand there and then 15 minutes later the player would come out and he would he would just talk to him and this would be utterly unthinkable now you know so so that has changed a lot over the years now like What's
0: coming through this conversation, obviously, is is quite a, a legacy, right? As as a magazine writer, as a successful writer in more than one language, and you've obviously touched a lot of different people. I mean, we've read your book, so we obviously, over in Ireland, have recognized your, your talent and the legacy, I suppose. What's important and what we're curious about is, is what do you do next? I mean, you've got your successful employed position now. So maybe you don't want to destabilize that too much, but what do you see next on the horizon in kind of the next five, six years in, in your writing
1: career? Well, legacy is a very big word. <laughs> Makes me feel well, older than when I'm actually. Fire in
0: and all those sort of books, you know, tour, they've been written and read by a lot of people. So,
1: Yeah. I mean, when we talked about the show before the show, we said, we don't really want to talk too much about the current crisis. But actually, it is, of course, affecting every one of us. So um, so we're doing, I mean, we as a magazine are doing kind of okay at the moment. Um, some, mag- some newspapers and magazines were hit harder because they are more interested in, you know, covering the players and the transfer markets and the match reports and so on. But still, it is a very difficult situation for us, you know. Um, so I really have no idea, let's, let's say three or four months ago, we could have talked about the future. You know, I would have told you that, uh, that I'm going to do a book about Franz Beckenbauer because there is no English book about Beckenbauer, which is kind of strange. And uh, we had some plans for the magazine. Um, but right now, I'm not so long as sure. I mean, I'm still sure about the Beckenbauer book, but not so much about the magazine situation. So I don't really know what the future will bring. I mean, I mean, I actually... The funny thing is I never wanted to go to Berlin. Uh, you know, most, most everybody wants to, and it's really, if, if you're young, it's a fantastic city. So I might go back to Dortmund where I'm from. I, I don't really know. It's just, uh, right now it's very hard to say. We just have to see, actually we have to see what the next couple of weeks and months will bring.
0: One last question from me, Uli, and then we're going to go over to Kiran. i I'm curious about, well, Rolling Stone is a very interesting story, right? How you, you know, Rolling Stone and now, now look where you are. Um, a question we often ask people on this, and when we when we work with clients, is what can sport learn from business, and what can business learn from sport? And I'm curious as to what could sport and football maybe learn from music, from what you've written and experienced through that part of your career.
1: Let me give myself a bit more time to think about that. Question. <laughs> Tr- a tricky question. What, what I haven't told you is how how I ended up from writing, you know, about american rock bands for rolling stone to football was that um um i did a couple of articles about music for rolling stone but then i um i found it harder and harder to come up with ideas of ideas to pitch to rolling stone because they're fairly we we didn't have that much common ground in terms of music actually but rolling stone both the american and the german version they have um they're very much it's not just a mere music magazine you know They, they, they cover all kinds of things they have um a big and important general affairs section. And uh, so it was 95 or maybe 96, no, probably more 95. What I told them is we should cover um, this sudden and very strange rise of football, you know, because in in the 80s, you know, most, most people looked at you in a strange and funny way if you said, you know, you were a fervent football fan and went to every game. And suddenly there was, you know, in the early to mid 90s, this huge football boom and football had become so popular and so hip. Um, and they said yeah go out and go out and, and, and research that so so I did that and I worked on that story for a couple of months and, and I met so many people and that's how I ended up you know uh, writing about football um, it was just it, it ca- basically came out of a magazine article you know I met people who who were starting up a new football magazine they ended up writing for them and so on and so on so it was um, so for me actually it, it you know it started out with music and then, ended up on a football pitch, maybe maybe creativeness and open-mindedness and being, you know, the fact is I, the, the strange thing is that when I wrote about music, I mainly wrote about, you know, independent bands, you know, small bands on small labels nobody had ever heard of. Uh, and then I went there to, to you know, uh, writing about big famous clubs. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure if one can actually learn from the other there, there will be some common ground you know being you know, trying to being creative and individualistic in a in a certain framework if that makes sense
0: well that's excellent like it's a i suppose it was just i was nearly trying to get to the heart of exactly you were into music doing music and how how did that become football so so we we got there through a very nice story so thanks thanks for sharing that yeah
1: to be really good at this, it, it's the writing you have to love, you know. Uh, and then sport is just the thing that you write about, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. So yes, there was a, there was a time in my life when I wanted to be a footballer, but it was very small. I once did a column about this for ESPN because I was, I think I was um, eight, eight or nine, and I wrote a letter to Otto Rehagel, who was then coaching Borussia Dortmund. And I was alerting him to a very, very good, talented young player just a couple of miles down the road, meaning myself, of course. And, and he <laughs> never replied. So and I've always bore a grudge against Otto Ray <laughs> Yeah, But apart from that small, short period, I always, wr- I always wanted to write and be a writer.
2: It's easy to say that you've done very well, and you've certainly epitomized high performance in terms of writing. So we'd like to get your opinion on this. What does high performance mean to you?
1: I think it means trying to be better than you are at the moment, for reasons we don't have to go into here because we're taking things way too too far. Uh, I I read a lot of books about um, American baseball in the nineteen thirties, and they always described that that sort of prototype, the the American beat writer, you know, uh, you know the, the cigar, the guy you know chewing on his cigar and watching baseball and then rushing to the newspaper offices. And then just, and they had, um, they would often describe a certain type of writer who worked well under pressure, you know, people who really wouldn't start writing until ten minutes from the deadline, you know, and then just bang it all out. And I'm not at all like that. I, I maybe there are people who can work like that. I'm not like that. I, I like to give things some thought, you know, before I even start writing, and then I often rewrite and I often look at what. If, now, often, and I don't think I've ever done anything where I don't thought afterwards that I could have done better. So um, if that makes any sense of you, in my job, I mm-hmm. think high performance means just, just you know prepare, being prepared, prepare yourself for the task and do it. And then just, don't just stop there. Don't think, well, that's good enough. Because good enough is most, most often it's not good enough. <laughs> but, of course, the trick is also you have, you have to find, you know, when you have to stop, you know. At one point, you have to say, this is enough, you know, stop rewriting. That's high performance. And the art the art is w- to know when when to stop and when to stop.
0: Hess, um. thank you very much for taking the time today to speak to Kiran and myself, David, here. We really enjoyed it, got a lot from it. Hope you got a lot from it as well. Um, wishing you all the best through this period and also coming out of this period moving forward.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much, Uli. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelled H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.